Matthew chapter 9. Matthew is the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew to give us his eyewitness account of ministering with Jesus. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is at the height of ministering. He's in Galilee and he's healing people. He is teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as he looks about on the masses around him, his heart is moved with compassion. He literally sees them as people in need. His assessment as sheep not having a shepherd. And at that moment in time, in Matthew chapter 9, he turns, he pivots, and I believe that the disciples themselves have been on this journey with Jesus. They are seeing the same sights as Jesus is seeing. And he gives them an incredible lesson in Matthew 9 and verse 37. Jesus saith unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. It is a fact upon reading those two verses that you are one of two things. You are either part of the harvest or you are a desired laborer. There's really no middle ground. We have a tendency to be self-centered. We have a tendency to have a small-minded view of the world. We see the world through the lens of that which only impacts us. And when we have a small view, and when we have a conceited approach, we really miss out on what God wants us to do in this world. An old commentator said Christianity is built on the twin pillars of discovery and communication. We first discover Christ, and then we communicate our discovery with others. We're in the midst of a lost world. And when we lose our perspective on the lost world around us, we lose the very purpose for our ministry. And I think it happens to every one of us. We become selfish and we become small-minded and in doing so, we lack a necessary motivation to continue on in the work of the Lord. In Romans chapter 3, as I have referenced it often, the Apostle Paul is working as a prosecuting attorney, communicating that all humanity is desperately lost and dead in their trespasses and sins without Christ. And though the world were arguing against him, he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. He'll come back in 11 verses and he'll give us that verse that many are familiar with. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The very Greek word that is used in that verse for sin communicates missing the mark. Missing the mark of the glory of God. No innate ability to close the gap between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. Desperation in need of a mediator. Though the world is lost, 
The truth is, all of humanity cries out that they are innocent. And it's almost laughable for the world to cry out their innocence. In fact, one commentator writing on this text said this, The world stands before God like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he's not been anywhere near the jam jar. Yet, unknownst to him, with an air of outraged innocence as he pleads the justice of his position, he has a spoonful of jam on his shirt just under his chin and the remnants of jam all around his mouth saying, no, it's not me. Have you ever lived that moment parentally? That is humanity crying out that they are innocent before a holy God when in reality it is all over them and it's declared all throughout Scripture that they are lost. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus will share his last mandate with his disciples, whom he loves deeply. And he says this to them, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. I can say to you without reservation that Christ's last command must be our first and passionate priority. The lost world and the lost that are around us is a primary motivation for every believer and we have to restore this passion. How do we restore passion for the lost. I believe we do that by remembering salvation is God's gift to all mankind. We're going to go really deep for a moment. I want to introduce a brand new thought, and I want to take you to a text that is very rarely visited, John 3.16. And the Bible says there, as you know and could probably recite with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You say, you read that from your notes, because you don't want to mess that one up in front of people. That is perhaps the single truth that Satan himself would like to blot out of Scripture more than any other. I love what one writer said, I know of no truth in the Bible that ought to come home to us with such power and tenderness as the truth that God so loved the world that whosoever. I wonder sometimes in a polarized world if we are as moved as we should be for the desperate need of the world for the truth of Jesus Christ. We are remembering 20 years since September 11th of 2001. It's stunning that 20 years have gone by. In these remembrances, I think we're probably visiting images that are brutal in their depiction of human loss. Perhaps to some degree, we're even desensitized to it because we're inundated by it. I cannot help but think through the lens of Scripture that as we remember 20 years from that tragic event and we see the loss of life, that many of the individuals that were lost on that day, as we remember 9-11-01, are experiencing their 20th year in the torment of hell with eternity yet to go. You say, Pastor, that's a terribly morbid thought. That 
fills me with anxiety. I say to you, much of that anxiety is misplaced and should be replaced with a passion to reach the lost because salvation is God's gift to all mankind. I think sometimes if we'll take familiar verses like John 3.16 and just unpack them phrase by phrase, it enhances our understanding for God. God is undeniably the source of all life. He is the creator. So it stands to reason that he alone would be the source and the creator of the new life. It is his plan for salvation, not ours. It's not a baptistic ideal. It's not a religious idea. It is birthed in the nature of God himself, for God so loved the world. The very word that is used in there does not indicate to us a mere feeling, but it is an action that God is taking. He so loved the world. That little word, so, signifies that there aren't enough words in any language under the sun to express the depth and the height and the length of the love of God. For God, the source of it all, so loved the world in action that he gave his only begotten son. Can you even begin to imagine that kind of love? Only begotten, communicating to us, unique, one of a kind. It's impossible to elaborate on that any further. The son of God gave his life as the perfect substitute for our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever. What a beautiful set of words that is. Because wrapped up in there is you and me and every human who has ever lived or drawn breath throughout history. Spurgeon said of that, this gospel is for all mankind and no man of woman born need hesitate to trust his soul's eternal interest in the hands of the Son of God. Whoever trusts him is and shall be saved. Whosoever declares unto us the fullness, the freeness of salvation, whosoever will may come. This means you and me and everyone that you will ever come in contact with. Believeth on him. How many of you have a good napping couch at home? Anyone? Yes, a good napping couch. How many of you will experience that good napping couch this afternoon at some point? A few, a few. When you see that napping couch, do you go in there and think to yourself, I am afraid to put all of my weight on that couch because I fear it may collapse to the ground? Probably not. If so, I would start with just getting a new couch and then I'd work on everything else. No, we trust that when we recline our full weight on that couch, it will hold us up. And what John is communicating to us is this, whosoever it is on the face of the earth, believeth in him, literally, will rest all of their weight on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not attempting to hold themselves up in any way, they should not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's a strong phrase because it indicates to us that unless something is done, you will automatically perish. It's your default setting. But the object of our belief, Jesus Christ, allows for us to be at peace with God. A holy God with no innate ability to close that gap between my sinful state and his holiness. If I will rest all of my weight on the finished work of Jesus Christ, he 
will see me as righteous as Christ, and that's a wonderful thing, should not perish, but have everlasting life. My passion must return, because the lost that are in this world are the whosoever who must be born again. And because I am no longer a part of the harvest, I am a desired laborer. And because I have received the truth, I now have the impetus to communicate the truth. My passion for that priority must return because it's God's gift to the lost world. Not only that, it's a mandate that Jesus Christ himself gave. I read it a moment ago in Matthew chapter 28. We might know it as the Great Commission. It's a simple message. It's a simple message. I have to go and I have to communicate to the world that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. That he died to pay for our sins. That he was resurrected and now is exalted in heaven. And he calls us to believe in him and to receive the forgiveness of our sins. That is really good news. It's a simple message to communicate that there's nothing to join. There's no systematic ladder that I have to climb up. It's a person that I have to receive. Though the message is simple, I know that it requires costly commitment from the messengers. And not enough of us are rolling up our sleeves to communicate that message to the world. It does not emanate from us as it should. The reality is such that though the message is simple, the cost that is assigned to the messenger is too great for us to carry out. And too many of us are silent on that front and not living it out. Our external communication is not a product of an internal state. The worst witness for the Lord Jesus Christ is miserable Christians. And there are a lot of miserable Christians. I would be a witness for Jesus Christ, but they painted the auditorium and I don't like the color. I would be a witness for Jesus Christ, but the schedule of the services and where I have to sit does not suit me. Other than that, I'd be a witness for Jesus Christ. I like Jesus and I even like church, but the pastor is so off-putting. That's at the church down the road, not this one. Think for just a minute about how poorly we represent Jesus Christ because we have an unsettled internal state. Bad marriages are a bad testimony for Jesus Christ. Bad kids are a bad testimony for Jesus Christ. Unhappy, whiny, complaining, worried about their own preferences, Christians are a bad testimony for Jesus Christ. I love what someone said of David Livingston, a great missionary. Said of him this, if I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to be a Christian, and he never spoke to me about it at all. But just by being around him, I had such a desire to have what he had and to be who he is, that without him ever speaking to me about becoming a Christian, I desired to be what he was. I cannot help but think we're too off-putting to the world because our internal condition does not match the external communication. There are a lot of miserable people in church. You want to be, listen, let me introduce you to this guy right here. We call him Mr. Happy. Happiest guy on the face of the earth. Talk to him for a second. Do you like your church? No. Why? A lot of stuff. Is it it really important stuff? No. It's my stuff. Is your worldview large or small? Like this. 
Now, let me just, I know you've never met this man. I know you've never been to our church. Do you want what he has? Uh, no. I don't want what he has. I don't want to be like him. There's no way. Well, he has good news for you. Really? I can't fathom that good news would emanate from this miserable source. I want you to comprehend that the mandate that Christ gave us must begin in the lives that we are living. And those of us with a Bible-believing and Bible-saturated and Bible-taught heritage who constantly hear and talk about spiritual things can at times, by the sheer weight of discussion, come to believe that we live up to what we are talking about, even if we do not. I'm a great Christian. No one wants what you got. So I question the greatness of your Christianity. Being an authentic witness demands an open, tender heart that's always growing in its experience of grace and that which it proclaims. That's why when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament and those that fervently followed God, we sense a zeal and a passion that we currently lack. The apostles were passionate for Christ. Look at Peter at Pentecost, Stephen at his stoning, Paul before Felix. They fervently promoted their faith. They were a band, and get this, this is a scary thought, of zealous believers who proclaimed the truth about Jesus Christ. Do you have any passion that emanates from the inside out? Is there anything about you that is attractive to other people concerning the truth of Jesus Christ? I love this little story when George Whitfield was getting the people of Edinburgh out of their beds at five o'clock in the morning to hear his preaching. It says, pause for effect. A man on his way to church met with David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher. He was a skeptic. He was an atheist. Surprised at seeing him on his way to hear Whitfield, the man said, I thought you didn't believe in the gospel. Hume replied, I don't, but he does. I don't, but I'm willing to listen to him because there's no doubt he believes it and he's living it out. I am as guilty as anyone gathered in this room. We are so whiny and non-compliant with Scripture. We are so selfish in our ambitions and so conceited in our aims and so carnal in our lifestyle. There is nothing that draws people to Jesus Christ. People do not care. People do not care about every little idiosyncrasy that exists within the church. They are worried about gray chairs. They're literally trying to hold their lives together and need to be interrupted by the grace of Jesus Christ. They aren't worried about lumbar support in the chairs or what their view in the auditorium is. But we are, and I am, And my view of the world has shrunk to the degree that I've become ineffective. No one can say, well, this doesn't apply to me. It does. You're either in the harvest or you are a desired laborer. If you are a believer, the commission exists for you. No loopholes. We are confronted by the reality of the early church who with none of the technology that we have available to us were accused of turning the world upside down for Christ. Can you imagine trying to join a small group in the early church at Jerusalem and standing out. Hey, listen, we're going to go down to the marketplace and we're going to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to the masses down there. Like now, you're going to walk out where people are and you're just going to start telling them about Jesus in the public marketplace. That's where we're heading. Are you in? uh, 
Next Saturday? Next Saturday. Hey, listen, so-and-so over here, they just lost their business and they've lost loved ones. The, the Sanhedrin took everything with them. They have nothing. And that couch that you love to nap on, they really are desperately in need of a couch. Can you join in the koinonia and give them that couch they're desperately in need? Well, there's a, not this couch, but we have one down in the basement. See up north where I'm from, we have basements. That's a place where you put the furniture that's not as nice as the stuff that's upstairs. That's the stuff you give to people in need. The donatable stuff. Hey, listen, our pastors, Peter and John, were just beat mercilessly for proclaiming the gospel. And tomorrow, we all want to come into Solomon's court in the temple, and we want to publicly meet together where Peter and John are. You mean tomorrow? No, I mean right now. You mean a post-beating meeting? A post-beating meeting. We all want to come together and show them our public support. With the Sanhedrin and the Romans looking on, yep, are you in I've developed a cough. We'll never be accused of turning the world upside down because we don't know this zeal. We don't grasp this passion. Our view of the world has shrunk to such a degree that we're impotent. I'm saying to you, my passion for this priority must return because salvation is God's gift to every lost man. And it is a mandate that I have received. And there is a great sense of urgency. Jesus Christ, I love this reality is speaking to the woman at the well. Samaritan woman at the well. When the disciples come back on the scene, they are stunned that Jesus is even speaking to a woman. It's it's amazing that this rabbi would be speaking to this woman. Politically speaking, the racially divided nation dictated that they were blown away that he was speaking to a Samaritan woman. They've gone down to get some food at the marketplace, and they're coming back to where Jesus is. They're bringing the food to Jesus. He's just encountered the woman at the well where he has shared with her the truth that he is Christ. Indicated in the pages of Scripture, she's received this. They walk up to Jesus with food. They hand it to him, and Jesus says in John 4.34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now get this. In other words, what Jesus is communicating is this. There's something nourishing and satisfying about serving God. There's something nourishing and there's something satisfying about delivering the truth of Jesus Christ to the lost. And we have people who fill churches week in and week out who are starving and proclaim that they are hungry and unsatisfied, and I wonder if they're missing out on the satisfying and nourishing diet of declaring the truth of Jesus Christ to the lost, of serving God according to His perfect will. You're starving and you're unsatisfied because you're not working in the field that God demands you work in. Continuing on from that thought, Here, even in Matthew 9, we read it, but in John 4, 34, Jesus says to his disciples, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They are white already to harvest. Jesus is communicating a sense of urgency to them. I'm not making it up. Time is flying by. 
People are dying. There is a sense of urgency to get the gospel to them. In simplest terms, Jesus was saying, you have a saying that correctly states there are four months between sowing and harvest. Agriculturally, that's true. But he goes on and he says, spiritually, that's not true. So, my disciples, lift up your eyes, look down the road, see the masses of people. The time of harvest is here and it's now. We have lost our sense of urgency. We live in such a polarized day that we actually fight hate for people that we've never met instead of trying to suppress compassion for people who are desperately in need. There is a sense of urgency, not because I'm simply saying the time short or your life is passing by as is theirs, but because Jesus himself communicated it. And then I know this, I have to restore my passion because the truth is transformational. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can change anybody. The apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. He's describing to them the individuals that don't make it into the kingdom of God. Now, I don't mean he is saying that anybody who has ever done these things doesn't make it in because the only people that make it into the kingdom of God are sinners who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But I want you to listen to his intentional language. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators. And he's going to go down a list. He's going to begin to tell us about some heinous sins, idolaters, fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of them make it in. Now, he's not saying again, anybody that's ever committed these can't make it, but he's saying people who habitually and happily live in this condition are not redeemed. They are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are unrighteous, and unrighteous don't make it into the kingdom. And then he turns it on this phrase, and it's exceptional. He says, and such were some of you. You were just like that. You were a rotten, wicked sinner, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Can you fathom that the church at Corinth had deacons who were former drunkards? Had people working in the services who had at prior times been idolaters and fornicators. What he is communicating is the power of the gospel is transformational and there is nobody out of bounds for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nobody too far gone. There is no darkness so dark. The power of the gospel is transformational. The apostle Paul, before was such, was Saul of Tarsus. And he was an incredibly hate-filled man. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is literally in the moment, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. In the language, it indicates to us that he was like a war horse snorting and pawing at the ground. He was fervent about persecuting the church. His fervency raised to such a degree that he went to the high priest, he went before the Sanhedrin, and he desired that they would authorize him to go and persecute Christians. And here's what the Bible says. 
He desired of him letters, that's from the high priest, to go to Damascus to the synagogues. That if he found any of this way, now remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any of this way indicates any Christians, any who are following the way of Jesus Christ. It was their moniker for them. They're followers of the way. Anybody that I find anywhere of the way, of Jesus Christ, I want to be authorized, whether they were men or women, to bring them bound unto Jerusalem. That's a hate-filled man. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Back a chapter in Acts chapter 8, as Stephen is being stoned, the Bible tells us Saul was consenting unto his death, even sets the historical context. It says to us, at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They're scattered abroad, and Paul, Saul, wants to hunt down those that were scattered abroad. What that verse in chapter 8 and verse in chapter 9 confirms to us is that Paul is involved with what we might call the Jerusalem Holocaust against Christians. I cannot imagine that there was anyone in the history of the church that shocked more people at their conversion than that as much as Saul of Tarsus. He was literally guilty of deaths multiplied A hundred times. Blood was on his hands. I love how one author wrote it. He said, Saul charged like an animal tearing its prey. This was not the sad efficiency of an officer obeying distasteful orders. His heart was enraged. Every suspect, man or woman, had to stand before the elders while Saul, as the high priest's representative, put to them the demand that they curse Jesus. He threw them into dungeons. The majority were punished by public flogging. It was not a sight for the squeamish. Saul remained unmoved as men and women staggered away with their backs a mass of blood. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. And yet in Acts chapter 22, when he's telling his own story, He says, and they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, arise and go to Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. Saul said, in that moment I capitulated, and in submission I acknowledged my sinful ways and received the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as truth, finished and settled. That is a turning point that he never got over. It is something that he never forgot. And in Acts chapter 26, he is even sharing with King Agrippa. And he says to him, as he's sharing his testimony, I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. 
But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. What a transformation. A Christ-hater unleashed on the world as the greatest church planter missionary that we'll ever know. Author of the majority of the epistles in the New Testament come from a man who bloodied the backs, separated homes, men, women, didn't matter, cast them into dungeons, stood idly by as they were massacred in his sight, and Jesus Christ was able to break through to him. Can I say to you that many of us as believers have stripped the power of the message of the gospel because we do not believe it as transformational as it actually is. We are dominated by hopelessness instead of being hope-filled that the gospel can make a difference. We've been inundated over the last several weeks with images that come from Afghanistan, and it's sad. In fact, I think at times it strikes fear in us to see images of individuals who we know not only stand against the freedoms that we hold dear, but also deny the truth of the Word of God, which guides our lives. We'll see images like this, and we're filled with a sense of hopelessness, because what we see is individuals who no doubt would carry out acts of violence, regardless of whether they were men or women, if they were believers or proclaimers of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we see is individuals that are armed to the hilt. We look at those images and we see someone that we would depict as our enemy. And yet I say to you, if I could show you a real world image of Saul of Tarshish, it would look something like that. And what I'm communicating to you is as we see images such as this before us, I wonder if we simply feel hopelessness and dread, fear and anxiety, or if we sense urgency to get the transformational gospel to that part of the world, because it can change anybody. It would be as revolutionary if one of them came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and then became one great proclaimer for the truth of the gospel. But I say to you, we have gotten to a place where we don't buy that. We don't believe that. We see our world as red and blue and black and white instead of lost and saved. And because we've gotten to that point in our self-centered, carnally driven agendas... We've negated the potency of the gospel, not because the gospel is impotent nor impractical, but because we just don't do our jobs. We're malnourished and we're unsatisfied in the Christian life because we are not engaged in the work of the Lord. I love this, and this may be for me alone, but I liked the story. So you have to sit there. Isn't that terrible how that works out? There was a minor... M-I-N-E-R, who once interrupted John Hutton. He was a famous Welsh preacher. While he was preaching, he leapt to his feet in the middle of his sermon and began leading the whole congregation in the doxology. Hutton was taken aback and decided he would make acquaintance with the man, which, you know, hopefully one of your ushers would have done that prior, but that's okay. 
Later, the man explained that he'd been a Christian only a few months. And that it was all so gloriously different that he couldn't sit still while the word of God was being preached. Then he said, I was a bad lot. I drank. I pawned our furniture. I knocked my wife about. And now life is real life and splendidly worthwhile. When asked how he fared among his fellows down in the mine pit, he laughed and replied, well, today they asked me, you don't seriously credit that old yarn about Jesus turning water into wine, do you? To which he answered, I know nothing about the water and wine, but I do know this, that in my house Jesus turned beer into furniture, and that's a good enough miracle for me. What he is saying is this, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once had no purpose, but now I have purpose. Can I tell you that your purpose on this earth is not to check your own happy boxes? Not to fulfill your own preferences, not to drag everybody else down into the mire that you live in, but to match your external communication with your internal condition. And to not see a world as red and blue and black and white, but lost and saved. To know for a fact that you are either in the harvest or you are a desired laborer. And that the message of salvation is God's gift to everyone in the world. And there is a mandate that's been assigned to you. The moment is urgent and the power is transformational. And some of the reason that we've locked motivation is because we've just moved past the desperation of the lost that are in this world. They're everywhere. There are people that are holding it together barely. Look at them. Look around. You see hurting people everywhere. It is not hard to see lostness. I just wonder if we have any compassion or motivation to tell them the truth. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.